At this point, we'll dismiss the kindergarten and first graders. We're looking at James. We're starting a new series here. And James starts out in verse 2 with trials or tests of various kinds. And so we're going to spend our time thinking about that and how you deal with those in your own life. And I hope and pray that it will be helpful. But I'm aware that some of you are in some pretty big trials and tests right now. Some of you are in a great place that you're like, wow, this is, I'm glad I finally got here. Uh, but you'll be in that place again one day, and some of us are in a difficult spot right now. So let's, let's pray together um, before we look at this passage. Heavenly Father, you have uh, providentially arranged it that we would be teaching about this passage today, and these people would be here to hear your words. And so that's what I pray that they're left with is your word and encouragement from you, a, a word of peace, a word of knowledge, a word of understanding, uh, the right perspective on trials and temptations. For those who are not in that place, may they um, shore up and strengthen their knowledge so that when they arrive, they are not easily thrown off. And Lord, for those who are um, suffering financially or physically or relationally, who find themselves in uh, the heat of a moment or under pressure, would you allow this word to be helpful to them this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, James, the writer of this letter, is the half-brother of Jesus. And uh, according to 1 Corinthians 15... After the resurrection, Jesus appeared to James. You may recall that James was somewhat skeptical of who Jesus was. I mean, he understood that he was his, his brother, but uh, he was skeptical about Jesus' actual claim. But after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus has a one-on-one -on -one encounter with James. And subsequently, James becomes a Christian, and then he emerges as one of the uh, prominent leaders in the early church. You might think of James as being the senior pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. And you read about James's leadership skills in Acts chapter 15. It was the place where there was this first church council. It was really the first place where there was a, a conflict within the church that had to be wrestled down. And that was primarily the people who were coming into the church had been Jewish. And now in Acts chapter 15, the word's beginning to spread out and some Gentiles are coming. And so there's some conflict. Well, these Gentiles are coming into the church. Do they have to take on all the Jewish customs and laws or can they just come it right in without having to take on the Old Testament laws that the Jewish people were living under? And so that was a great tension and that got settled out that the Gentiles did not have to adopt the laws that the Jewish people were living under and the customs. Um, but although this uh, council was happening and Peter was there and Paul was there and Barnabas was there, at the very end, James is the one who comes, sums up the information and then gives this declaration that then moves out in letter form to other places for the early church. 
Although James was an excellent leader, he had the heart of a shepherd. He's trying to shepherd this small, uh, spiritually immature, struggling, persecuted congregation. In fact, the persecution had gotten so great, you remember that um, a lot of the people had even scattered out from Jerusalem. So James is writing to this congregation that is, is oppressed. It's very small. It's probably very poor, generally, financially. And they're, they're scattered, and they're undergoing trials. And he's trying to write this very uh, helpful, practical letter to members of his congregation. One thing that makes James's letter unique is that it's so practical. A lot of the commentators will compare it to the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, like Proverbs, because it, it just like Proverbs, you just read this piece of wisdom and you go to the next verse and it doesn't seem to be particularly related. It's just one piece of information piled on top of another. And James more or less reads that same way. And so as we look at this, and as I've thought about it, I've thought about the book of James as these exhortations, or the way I've thought about it is Christianity at street level. I mean, how do you just live your life as a Christian? What does it look like when you walk through these doors and you go out and you live in your house and you live in your neighborhood and you live at workplace? How do you just live as a Christian? What's the practical realities of living your life as a follower of Christ? As you walk down the streets of your daily living, there's all kinds of vendors, so to speak, on each side of the road, and they're calling out to you. And it might be wealth, or it might be poverty, it might be suffering, it might be persecution, it might be temptations or trials, it might be worldviews or anger, all kinds of things gather, uh, trying to, to have your attention. And my question is, and so, so how do you live your Christian life out on those kinds of streets? How do you interface with those things that want your attention? Where, where does your faith fit in? Is it strong enough to handle what life brings at you? And these are the kinds of questions James is trying to answer for the everyday believer. James is primary, primarily concerned about doing and not doctrine. If you came to the Bible and you wanted to gain some insight about uh, man's relationship with God, or if you wanted to think about the vertical part of our relationship with the Lord, then you wouldn't come to James. You'd come to Romans Romans uh, 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Romans uh, 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that, God, that Christ died for us. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's, that's all vertical. When you, when, you, when, when you come and say, who am I? Who is God? What needs to happen? You're going to go to Romans. He, Romans is going to unpack all kinds of doctrine for us so that we understand what is my relationship to God and what is his relationship to me. So that's doctrinal. But when you come and say, well, what I'm primarily concerned about, what I don't understand is how do I live my life sort of in the horizontal range? How do I take this doctrine and walk out on the street? How does my faith interface with the people and the life that I have out on the street? And that is 
the book of James. And we have to have that in our, our mind as we go through. James is trying to help us understand how we just live our life every day out into the realities that we face. So James the pastor, James the shepherd, he has this congregation full of these new believers. And these new believers immediately encounter heavy persecution. As soon as they get into the church, it's, they're persecuted. And so what's the very first thing this pastor is going to address? Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is the very first thing his congregation is facing when they leave the doors of the church. And so he's saying, hey, let's just face the first thing that you, when you, when you get out, this is what you're facing. Some of you have probably lost a loved one. Some of you are feeling that persecution now. So let's, let's go ahead and hit, hit this head on. It, we, we shouldn't be surprised that this is one of the first things James says, because one of the easiest ways to pick off a, a new believer, one of the easiest ways to pick off a, a seasoned follower of Christ is a good trial. You get somebody in a good trial and then suddenly they're just thinking, well, where is God and where is my faith and what is this all about? And maybe I don't believe the right thing. And so James is concerned about his congregation because their, their external circumstances were crumbling. They, they prayed and maybe they thought it was like the genie in the bottle. I'm supposed to pray and I just put my request before the Lord and then bingo, it just all turns out right. And it's not turning out right. And so how do you face that when, when God's not acting like what you would want him to do? So we're just going to walk through this passage and, and ask this question. What is James teaching his congregation and thus you and I about trials? Let's look at verse 2. Notice uh, this word here in verse 2. When, when you meet trials of various kinds. I don't, I don't care what translation you have. It says when and it doesn't say if. Now, in the PPV version, the Paul Phillips version, I would like to have that be if. But I don't have that option. It's when you face trials of various kinds. No one should be surprised that they face trials. No one should get into Christianity thinking, well, now I've got some kind of force field around me. And now that I've got the force field around me, I'm sure nothing bad is going to happen to me. And we have to know right away that anything that can happen to any human being can happen to you as a Christian. Anything that can happen to any human being can happen to you as a Christian. Because it's easy when you first get in, you think, well, gosh, God's got my back and he's going to protect me and nothing bad's going to happen to me. I'm not going to get that bad report. My kids are all going to be fine and blah, 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 blah. And we just think, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. And we get in and we find out, hey, lots of stuff that's happening to non-believers, this is happening to me. And you can get discouraged, you can get distracted, you can begin to wonder if you've really put your faith in something real. And so James is trying to help his congregation and help us to say, hey, when it happens... And then notice it's, it's various kinds. 
that that word in the Greek means variegated. It's it's multicolored. It's not just the, this particular trial that you're walking down the street and there's trials coming on on each side. It's you have to have the full armor of God. Paul says in Ephesians chapter six. You need to have the full armor of God. You have to have the, the belt of truth. You have to have the helmet of salvation. You have to have the breastplate of righteousness. You have to have your feet, your foot, your feet fitted with the gospel. You have to have the sword of the Spirit. You have to have all these things because things are coming. Various trials are coming at you. So you have to have full equipment. You have to be ready for that to happen because it will happen, not if it will happen. I ran into an old friend this week and we were talking, just kind of catching up on the last few years. And he said, uh, you know, Paul, 2009 was a very dark year for my wife and I. We were upside down on our finances. We started a new job. We were trying to get pregnant and we couldn't. And we... We just weren't prepared for our trials. And so I said, well, what did you learn? Well, we learned that it's a battle every day. See, what happened to us is we thought at some point we could just float along. And we floated into a dark tunnel. So now we get up and we realize every day we've got to fight for our marriage. Every day we've got to fight for our faith. Every day we've got to be engaged because we need to be prepared. The trials are going to come. You're, you're not going to like the job that you, in, in, this, in the second year as much as you did in the first day. You're going to try to get pregnant and think, why, why does everybody else seem to get pregnant and I can't get pregnant? You're going to be upside down in your finances and all these things are going to happen. When they happen, you have to be prepared And if you're not prepared, if you're not ready to fight, and James understands this from his congregation, then if you just think you're going to float along, you're going to float along into a very dark place. And then look at this in verse 3. He says, uh, you should know, for you know, or you should know. He's, He's trying to say, I'm trying to put this in your mind. This is something that you should know. If you don't know it, you should know it right now because I'm telling it to you right now. You should know this, that this testing has a good purpose. It's it's going to produce something that's beautiful. I want you to know that. I want you to have that in your mind that, yes, you are going to face trials. And when you're facing them, I want you to know, I want you to have this in your mind. It is producing something beautiful, even if I don't see it right away. And when we think of testing or we think of trials don't don't think of an exam god's putting the paper across the table you're filling it out and you're trying to get an a or a b or a c you're just trying to pass that's not the the picture the word picture that james wants us to have he wants us to have the picture of of metallurgy you know what this is this is the process of your you're taking something taking a metal out of the ground and you have to put it underneath certain conditions to actually get the metal. So if you're mining out gold or you're mining out silver or you're mining out iron, you bring it out, but it comes out in a different kind of state. It's called ore. And it comes out in this ore state, 
And then the metallurgist, he has to put it underneath this pressure. He has to put it underneath this heat. And he has to get rid of the imperfections or the impurities or what they call uh, waste rock. It doesn't come out in a form or a fashion that's useful right away. Probably almost all of us have some kind of metal on today. I have a gold ring. But it didn't come out of the earth that way. Nobody's wearing a nice piece of ore. But the ore got shaped. It got it, all this waste rock got blasted away from it. And now it's something that's beautiful. And so that's the picture that he wants us to see. That this ore is coming out. It has imperfections. And these imperfections are robbing it of its strength and beauty. And so it's got to be, it's got to undergo this very difficult time, this refining process so it can really be useful. If I were at Robert Campbell's church, I would say, you need to look to your neighbor and look at him and say, I've still got some imperfections. And some of you would say, yeah, I know. I know I can listen to it for you right now. But see, we still have some imperfections. We're, we're, we have been saved. We've, we've been pulled out of this dark world by the, the power of the blast of the gospel. And we're coming out and it's a great thing. But you're not coming out at a wonderful state right away. You still got some imperfections. You still have some waste rock. And God sees that and he's divinely designed these tests to boil away or get rid of some things that he sees that are not helpful. Douglas Moo says this in his commentary, the difficulties of life are intended by God. The difficulties of life are intended by God to refine our faith heating it in the crucible of suffering so that impurities might be refined away and so that it might become pure and valuable before the Lord. The testing of faith here, then, is not intended to determine whether a person has faith or not. It is intended to purify the faith that already exists. So you get the picture? You're coming out. The gospel's blasted you out of this dark place, but you're coming out in this ore state. And there is something precious, there is something beautiful, but we've got to refine that, and that's going to take some heat, that's going to take some pressure to turn you into something useful and something beautiful. And then notice he says, this is what it produces, this, this heat, this pressure, this testing produces a, a steadfastness, a, a perseverance. It's the picture of somebody who can sustain a heavy load for a long time. We need in the church men and women who can stand up underneath a heavy load for a long period of time. And the only way you can do that is by building your spiritual muscle. If you're uh, going to the weight room and you're trying to gain muscle mass, then the way you do that is you put increasing pressure on your muscles and you might add five pounds or 10 pounds or 20 pounds but you you keep your muscles 
underneath a pressure for an increasing amount of time and then you get stronger. And that's how you become stronger as a Christian. You're, you're underneath this pressure and it's getting rid of this waste rock, these imperfections, and then you're going to be able to stand up underneath that in critical moments. You, you might think of James here as like a fitness coach. He's telling his congregation, hey, you, you just come into the gym and I'm glad you're here, but we're going to have to do some work here. And I don't want you to be discouraged when pain comes along because that pain is actually going to produce a spiritual muscle that's going to matter to you. It's going to matter to the congregation that you're in. It's going to, be mad. It's going to matter to your family. And in verse 4 he says, let this steadfastness, let this perseverance have its full effect. You, you can't, you can't, it can't have its full effect if you fly away from it. See, that's my tendency. Oh, that's heavy. Got to get away from that. That hurts. Don't like that. I'm looking for ways to medicate. I'm looking for ways to escape. I'm looking for ways to avoid. But James is saying, hey, I want it to have its full effect. And in order for it to have its full effect, in order for you to really be complete, for, for you really to be perfect, you're going to have to stay underneath this pressure for some length of time. And so we can't fly away from it. Question, how do you respond to trials not, not necessarily really big things, but just everyday frustrations. Your family, your workplace, your neighbors, yourself. Just how do you respond to testing? How do you respond to just everyday kind of street-level pressures? The reason that's a helpful question is because the way you respond often reveals what rules your heart. You see, if you're ruled by power and control, if you're ruled by comfort, then you'll be easily angered. As, as soon as somebody comes into your life and doesn't do what you thought they were going to do, oh, man, I can't believe it. As soon as the person gets into the left lane and slows down and you become angry, well, hey, it's got it's to be my way. And so what, what, when, you, when you encounter that, what, what is God saying? Hey, this is at the core of your heart. Is it power? Is it control? Is it comfort? Is it the affirmation of people around you? You're really controlled by the affirmation of people around you. So, so just one negative comment, one criticism, and you tank. You're depressed. You're discouraged. You can't sort of get up because... One, one bad comment. But what does that say? It says something else is ruling your heart. Is it possible that an all-sovereign, eternal God has brought heat or pressure to your situation in order to free you of an idol? Maybe God is keeping you in a, 
a very heated place in order to blast away some kind of imperfection. Is it possible that the trials you're encountering are not a sign of God's inattention, but a sign of His transforming love? Instead of getting into a trial saying, God, where are you? you say, I know you're here. I know you're trying to blast away something. I'm, I'm trying to stay here. I'm trying to live at this point. It's difficult, but I know you're working something out to, to, to make me beautiful, to make me useful, and then I can count it all joy. I love this quote by Paul Tripp. Perhaps we do not take joy in the circumstances of our life because we do not take joy in the agenda of our Redeemer. Perhaps we do not take joy in the circumstances of our life because we do not take joy in the agenda of our Redeemer. God's agenda is holiness. Yet if we are honest, holiness is not as valuable as comfort, control, or affirmation. You see that? If you really want holiness, or do you really want comfort or control, Yet if we, we stay under the heat, if it has its full effect, th- then when you walk down the streets, as you continue to walk down the streets and the vendors come out and they're demanding your attention, you can look at them and say, God's enough. And when you can say that, then you're really useful for the kingdom. When you get to the point where all the pressures, wealth or anger or poverty or suffering or worldviews or whatever it is that's coming at you, and you can just look and say, you know what, God's enough. Man, then you're useful. Then you're beautiful. Then he can say, yes, okay, we're at a place that something can happen now. And this, this is the kind of strong timber that James is trying to produce in his congregation. This is the kind of strong timber that had to, to be built in the early church that had to stand up underneath the pressure of a whole regime for 300 years. This, this is the kind of strong timber that James is trying to say, we've got to have this, men and women. We're right at the foundation. We've got to have people who are going to be able to stand up underneath this kind of pressure, not only just for you, but for the next generation. And it's worth asking ourselves, what's our timber rating? I mean, are we a timber or a toothpick? I mean, when the pressure comes on, is it just a snap like a twig? But if you do, then we need to strengthen that muscle, and we're going to strengthen that muscle by another point of pressure. Final point. The question that, that I had as I thought through just these first few verses I want to be able to count it all joy. I think I can count it all joy when when I see that I'm really just for God and not for men, when I'm really just focused on Him and not on other things. 
I want to be somebody who can stand up underneath pressure. I want to be someone who can hold up underneath that. I want to be about holiness rather than comfort. But how do you stay there? How, do you, how is it that you stay in that place? What gives you the, the, the motive? What gives you the, the energy to stay in that place instead of fly away? And I think James answers that in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised. What a great promise. You see what James is saying? He's saying, hey, when Jesus came and he looks out into the crowd and he says, anybody who wants to follow after me, take up your, not crown, Sure wish it was crown. Be happy to volunteer for crown. But what does he say? Take up your cross. See, when you're, when you're down here, you're going to have that pressure. But I want you to know when you're carrying your cross, when you're carrying that trial, what's going to keep you underneath that cross? It's knowing that you're going to get a crown. It's looking up, it's looking forward, not just one year from now, not, not your retirement, but 10 billion years from now. You're going to have this crown, a crown of life, a, a crown of righteousness. And knowing you're going to receive that helps you move forward. It's really no different than what's said in a number of other places in the Bible, Hebrews 12. Let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him. What joy was set before Christ? That he was going to be at the right hand of God the Father. That he was going to stand beside God and say, God, I stayed underneath the heat of the cross. I, I bore the sin and shame in order to redeem the world. And when he sees us coming down the aisle of eternity towards him, what a great joy. He's going to know I did that for Paul Phillips when he comes forward. I'm going to give him that crown. I'm going to give him my crown. When the Apostle Paul encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy, you remember we studied this about a year ago. This old dying pastor is trying to encourage this young star pupil. And he's saying, Timothy, I, I, I'm trying to fan into flame this gift of God, but I'm concerned that you would uh, allow something or some person to come in or suffering or trial to, to knock you off course. And I don't want you to get knocked off course. I want you to finish the race. So in just in a series throughout the letter, don't be ashamed of the gospel, Timothy. Timothy, people are going to abandon you. I don't want you to, that to knock you off your course. Uh, people are not going to want to hear the truth. In fact, they're going to pay for people to tell them what they actually want to hear. Timothy, it's going to be a, a constant fight not to be seduced by the world. Timothy, I know it's going to be a fight because I fought the good fight. He says in 2 Timothy 4, 6. I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, and now I know there is in store for me a crown. You see what 
Paul, how is Paul able to stay underneath that? A crown. A crown of righteousness. And this crown isn't just for Paul, it's for Timothy, it's for anyone who would believe. And and I think the the James, the, the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, he's looking at his tired, worn out, persecuted congregation, and he's looking at them and he's saying, I know it's difficult, I know you've got trials, I know I don't even have all the answers, but I know there is the answer, and it's Jesus, and one day you're going to meet him face to face, and when you do, I want to be on the aisle seat, I want to watch you walk down the aisle of eternity, where you stand before Jesus, and he gives you a I want to get you to that point, James is saying. Well done. You stayed underneath the heat for my name. You you persevered. You carried a heavy load. Now, take off the cross and receive a crown. What What a great moment for James. But that's what I want for you. That's the promise for you. If I get there before you, I'm going to, when your name gets called, I'm going to say, hey, I need an aisle seat right now. Because one of mine is coming down the aisle. And I can't wait. Maybe I can in some ways, but you know what I'm saying. I can't wait till they call out your name and you come from this world into eternity. And you walk down the aisle and Jesus has got a crown for you. And I'm going to be on the aisle going, yes! Awesome! They stayed underneath the heat. They they carried a heavy load. They, They carried the cross that they had to bear. And now Jesus is saying, you're beautiful. Beautiful for all of eternity. That, that's, that's how you keep going. You have to have that in your mind. You have to know that that's a, a truth. It's got to be in you that that's going to happen. But that day is not today. Today we're carrying crosses. And some of us pretty difficult crosses. And so we come to this table today. And appropriately, we walk down the aisle. And we're remembering, I hope, that you're going to walk down another aisle of eternity one day. But today, it's the day where you remember that you're carrying a cross that he's asked you to carry. But he wants you to know, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. And I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to make sure even when you stumble, you get all the way home. And so he, on the night that he was, before he was killed, he took the cup and he took the bread and he said, this is my blood, this is my body, it's, for you I want you to do this every time you're together so you remember what I've done 
what I've given and that I'm, I'm always with you. But one day we're going to see him face to face and we're going to get a crown. But until that, we remember what he's given us, his, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his power to move forward. Would you come down? I would just ask you to think about